We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Liz Russell booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jen McQueen. Committees, public inquiries, and special repertoires. Is it Canadian politics or a Netflix special? So I've hired a rapporteur to take a look into this and see exactly what is going on, Olivia. And we'll see if, in fact, we do need to put petunias onto that side of the fence or not. Uh, well, and then the spring, it'll be it. Playing the Iggy Pop, why do you ask? Because there's always a reason for the top hour songs. There's always significance. And we're always looking for new ones. Uh, Iggy Pop, 176 on Rolling Stone's top one, uh, top 200 songs, singers, sorry, of all time. You'd think because I've said it enough, I'd know by now. And then every so often, you know, someone dies or there's a, an occasion that we have to play or we can play another song and we're, we're going to deviate off the list. Or feel free to send your request. We'd love to hear from you. But really, over the last, what, two, three years? Hey, like next week, it's the three year, three year mark that they told us to go home. Think about that. Uh, and, you know, during that time, always asking the staff to give me songs, give me songs. What do you think? What do you feel like? Where's your head? What's it like in the newsroom? What's it like? What do you, you know? Uh, so we now are relying on the list. So uh, there you go. And again, like an all, like an, like an all request Friday. Uh, at the end, it's up to you. All right. Uh, enough of that. Where the heck are we? Uh, lots going on today. Thanks for joining us. And uh, feel free to jump into the fun. Send us a note, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. So, uh, neat show coming up. Hey, you know who we're going to talk to? And, and uh, you know, like Rick already had the mayor on, uh, the mayor of Brantford earlier on today. And we remember the story broke late yesterday. Uh, Radley, I think, also had the mayor on. So we're going to have uh, on the counselor that brought up the motion to do the whole arena study. And uh, we recorded it a little earlier on today. And they are very happy up in Brantford, to say the least. There's a lot of excitement going on. So uh, looking forward to that a little later on in the four o'clock hour. All right. Uh, where are we now? Uh, continuing on uh, in re- in regard to uh, uh, reports in Chinese allegation, Chinese interference in uh, Canadian elections, global news all over this. And our great investigative reporter, Sam Cooper, along with Robert Fife for the Globe and Mail, uh, have been following these stories for months and years. And now uh, it is all coming to the forefront. And of course, uh, it was uh, the Prime Minister's office has reported yesterday that uh, has been uh, was made aware of these two uh, high-level memos that said that there was in fact uh, interference. So there you go. Uh, so we'll talk about that coming up a little later on uh, as well. Uh, also, RCMP investigating two so-called Chinese police stations in Quebec. We talked about that happening in Ontario. Uh, what else we got? Oh, uh, Christia Freeland says the grocers need to be more um, uh, uh, responsible and more transparent when it comes to uh, to grocery prices, which, you know, is a little odd. Anyway, uh, there, as we talked about here, the grocers, all the big head honchos were in Ottawa yesterday. Here's what Global News' David Aiken have to say about where we go from here. It's probably no surprise that it was the leader of the country's left-leaning national party, the NDP, of course, that led the charge blaming greedy grocery store chains for sky-high food prices. 
We have families that are struggling to buy food for their kids in this country, in a G7 country. And they look at you and they see you making record profits. How could you justify that? Jugmeet Singh and other MPs took their shots Wednesday at wealthy grocery store CEOs. Conservatives argued that grocery store chains are taking advantage of farmers. You as the CEOs of major grocery chains have an oligopoly with it, only five companies controlling 80% of grocery stores in Canada. And you use this power to nickel and dime farmers and wholesalers to the tune of hundreds of thousands of dollars for many. This is understandable. But the CEOs, well, they politely pushed back on this political theater, arguing that their company's profits and their own multi-million dollar bonuses are not the cause of food prices, which have jumped 10% in just the last four months. Grocery chains operate with extremely small profit margins, which means we have minimal influence on inflation. On a customer's $25 grocery basket, we earn just $1 in profit. It is no solace to struggling Canadians buying groceries to know that food inflation is a global phenomenon driven by higher commodity and input costs. Meanwhile, far away from the committee room on Parliament Hill, the country's finance minister was putting those grocery chain CEOs on notice. Grocery CEOs have a responsibility to their customers and they have a responsibility to all Canadians to work really, really hard with all of us to get inflation down and to get prices down. Now the solutions presented to politicians who are quite keen to lower the food bills for their voters have so far been pretty meager. A grocery store code of conduct, fine-tuning competition law, even forcing banks to charge grocers lower transaction fees when consumers pay for food with their credit card. David Aiken, Global News, Ottawa. I guess if you say things more slowly, the same that you have been saying over and over again, somehow it will change reality. (laughs) Do you have any confidence in any of that crap? Holy smokes. Uh, We'll dig into it as the afternoon progresses. All right, we talked about this way back when, and it was an old idea that was brought back, uh, I believe, during the the pandemic to try to, you know, bring some sort of normalcy uh, into the city of Hamilton. And they had a Hamilton Day initiative. Well, look, it's been recognized. Greg Dunnett is with us, President of Hamilton Chamber of Commerce, and with us now. Greg, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing today? So far, so good. So tell us about these uh, accolades that you have received and, and uh, what this means for the city. Yeah, we had, a, we had a great night last night, both as a Chamber of Commerce, but also as a tourism city. Um, our organization and Hamilton Day were recognized at the Festival and Events Ontario Award Gala. Uh, in the categories of both best promotional campaign and best social media campaign. And that was really to illustrate the incredible impact that we had with Hamilton Day with over $8.9 million, $8.9 million traditional media impressions, 31,000 visitors to our microsite, uh, 235,000 social media impressions. So Hamilton Day as a whole and the, the premise of shopping local and, and supporting our small business community uh, really had an impact. And then on top of us winning those two awards, a lot of 
our great festival and events in Ontario one uh, within the top 100 festival and events in Ontario, uh, including uh, Because Beer, Winterfest, Supercrawl, the Winona Peach Festival, and the Dennis Cack Festival. So it was a it was a fantastic night, and Hamilton was very well represented um, in our our awesome tourism opportunities we have here in Hamilton. Uh, what's cool about this, Greg, is, and, and I remember, uh, talking about it way back when. Ta- well, first, let's set people up in, uh, for this story in case they haven't heard. What was the Hamilton Day Initiative? What did you win the award for? That's a great question. So, um, in 1931, the Chamber of Commerce ran a Hamilton Day in the midst of the Great Depression to boost spirits in the local economy. And the team at the Chamber relaunched that program in 2021 during the pandemic to again help support our small businesses who are being impacted by being impacted by stuff outside of their control so hamilton day was brought back we had an incredibly successful 2021 and on november 5th of 2022 we hosted it again we expanded it you know turned it into more of a tourism event with our partnership with Metrolinks and allowing people to come into our community and visit the eight community markets that we hosted, worked worked with our 11 BIAs and over 929 Hamilton businesses, or not over, exactly 929 Hamilton businesses participated. And what was great about it is, you know, 50% saw increased sales, 50% saw increased social media impact. So, you know, with some of our participants seeing their sales double for that date historically. So it's an incredible initiative. Just get out, shop local, support your small business owners in our community. And that's, we're bringing it back next year, November 4th, uh, first November of every year going forward. And it's really just a great support, you know, showing your civic pride and supporting those businesses that are really helping to build the foundation of our community. Bizarre how, you know, we all remember what COVID-19 and the pandemic was like. I mean, uh, next week, it's the three-year anniversary of everybody told to go, being told to go home um, and, and, and how it changed things and, and what happened through that. And we're still dealing with a lot of it now um, that you go back to like the Depression era and grab an idea and boom, it takes off. That's hilarious. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I'm new enough here that that was in uh my brilliant idea, but I, I think it really like the connections are great. And again, I think, you know, what I, what I like about this initiative, Scott is, as we kind of look forward and we're going to have this transformation in our downtown core coming in the next five to 10 years. And that need to shop local and support local is going to continue to be incredibly important. So this initiative is a one day celebration, but it highlights the importance of, of, supporting local businesses every single day because, you know, we are going to have a transformed city in the next 10 years, but that's going to come with all of us supporting each other and making sure that the city does achieve the potential that we're looking for it to have. And I think we all believe, like one of my favorite things about being a Hamiltonian is that civic pride we all have and how much we believe in this community and each other. Uh, the social media aspect of this uh, is what took it over the top and, and what you won the award for, which, you know, if for lack of a better phrase, this is like a modern day sidewalk sale and, and hence the social social media um, uh, exposure and just the success of it all. Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I agree. And uh, th- this is why I deserve no credit for the award, because my social media skills are 
awful. But um, <laughs> you know, the, the teams, the teams' ability, our teams' ability to, uh, you know, really have uh, influencers support it um, to to have a grassroots hyper local campaign that you know just engage people and and that's really you're right we'll put it over the top and i mean that's an incredible nine million traditional media impressions that's such an incredible number but i do think it also shows that the campaign struck a chord right and that it it did it not only drove traffic locally in hamilton but brought people into hamilton because of the excitement around the event Hamilton Chamber of Commerce uh, won Achievement Awards for their Hamilton Day initiative, and now it has become an annual event uh, every November 4th. Greg Dunnett with us, President of Hamilton Chamber of Commerce. Greg, good luck. Congratulations moving forward. Thank you very much, Scott. You have a great day, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Juno's this weekend, Sunday night in Edmonton, getting ready, packing his bags to make the uh, trek out. Tom Wilson with his Mohawk author, visual artist, musician, Lee Harvey Osmond, Junk House, and Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, who are up for Contemporary Roots Album of the Year. Tom, how are you? Are you packed yet? I'm, you know what? It's funny, Scott. I've been waiting. I've been holding it off. I've been procrastinating. I actually am going to start packing when I hang up from this call. So, please, <laughs> I know you were worried. You were concerned that I wasn't packing the right clothes. I'm going to try and pack the right clothes. I just want to make sure that you pack the extra toque. You need a new toque. You got to get, get the toque going because you're heading out to Alberta, buddy. Come on. I know. I know. There's nothing like, you know what? Uh, the Juno Awards are in Edmonton. Uh, my wife is so excited because she thinks there's nothing like Edmonton in March. So we're going to go find out. <laughs> we're going to go find out just uh, the luxurious uh. Yeah. So, is there a part of this country that you have not been to over your years in doing whatever you're doing, whatever the endeavors? Is there a piece of this country you haven't seen? There's not. Uh, I've been to uh, been through the uh, the territories. I've toured up there. I've toured uh, Red Lake, the home of uh, Norville Morriso in northern Ontario. I've been to Newfoundland, and I've been all the way to vancouver island and all over that island in fact so i guess i've been everywhere just like hank snow i've been everywhere so um over the years i've been fortunate enough to work in various provinces across the country in in my career and i've always found especially when you go east and west um you get a very much different perspective uh, perspective of what canadians are how does your opinion of Canadians change once you travel like that, as opposed to just staying in one place and being a Hamilton boy or a Southern Ontario boy or whatever. You know, it's it's a funny thing. Uh, you know, I, I don't I don't get involved in too much of politics. You know, I don't go. I, I was just in Michigan, and uh, during my show, I said, "I don't come to your country and tell you what to do. It's just a lot of rule." And I don't go to Alberta mm-hmm. and I don't go to Saskatchewan and tell anybody what to do. You know, my job, my job when I'm there is to uh, entertain or to give a message that hopefully resonates with people, a message of of love and understanding and patience and peace. And that's really uh, the only thing that I can deliver to people across this country and and in Europe, in the United States. Um, I know that the sense of humor changes across the country. I don't need to talk about <laughs> politics because Canadians are funny as hell. And it starts in Newfoundland. <laughs> And, uh, you know, if you notice, I don't know if you've noticed this, but, you know, the pirate, 
there's an R in the East Coast. Hey, day or something. Yeah, yeah, but, you know, yeah, yeah. It starts to die when it starts. The further west you go, the less yeah. pirate is in Canadian. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> that's a great observation that right there. No, that's yeah. a great observation. All right. And the so, thing about Canada that when I travel and people comment is that the entire country is stoned. So you know what? Mm. Everybody's kind of a good mood these days. <laughs> you know, I've always thought, though, if, you know, you could just bring a couple of people from each province, each city, each area, and you put them into a room and you let them just mill about and, and you know, and, and, and have a bevy or two, how much they realized, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm not sure they realize how much they have in common and how much they have a love for each other. Because it always seems we're so divided and it's like the West is never from the East. The center of the of the country is the universe, and all that sort of stuff. But if you go from east to west, like all Canadians are still Canadians, there's still that common feel. And if they can all get together and just you know, you know, have a great party, it was like you'd think everybody would understand what everyone else is talking about. Yeah, I know it's true. You know, we're all really good people. We're all human beings. We all want to understand each other. We all want to love one another. But uh, you know, there's just uh, too much, uh, too much government and too much uh, religion. You know, that uh, corporations have gotten away. Yeah, yeah. And and they kind of, you know, they're, they're the ringleaders to uh, to dividing us. It doesn't matter, you know, uh, where you're from, or or uh, uh, you know what you do for a living. Um, the the job of the the journey of trying to find joy in this lifetime is, is really what we're all trying to do. And I just find that uh, politics and religion and corporations get in the way of that. And I'm not even listen, I'm not a communist. I'm not a com- I'm, I'm I'm not even uh, an unfaithful man. I'm just saying that uh, Canadians are are living in the best country in the planet. And we are some of the best people that this world has to offer. So we should probably start acting like that and stop following these uh, the leaders, you know. Well said. All right. So uh, let's talk about the music. Blackie and the Rodeo Kings was once supposed to be a one-off. Look where you are now. Uh, what does it feel like to go in there and, you know, because you guys are veterans now in, in, in another Contemporary Roots Album of the Year nomination? Well, I can tell you I'm the only member of the band showing up to the Junos this year. Uh, Colin Linden is busy working in Nashville. Stephen Fearing is getting ready to tour Canada. He's going to be coming to Hamilton, by the way, to the Bridgeworks. And Colin Linden's going to be coming to Hamilton also to the Mule Spinner at uh, the Cotton Factory later this month. Mm. So those guys are busy, and uh, and it just seems that I don't have anything much else to do except go to the Junos and eat a bunch of free food. So um, I'm, I'm heading there. I'm going. I've got myself a couple outfits, and like I said, I'm going to pack them up. It feels good to be going to the tunes. I always say, you know, I've, I've never been cool. I've never tried to be cool. I would rather be nominated for an award than not, and I would rather win the award than not. This year, I'm up for a Juno with Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, and my movie is up for uh, three screen Canadian screen yeah. uh, awards this year. So um, it's kind of award season for me. You know what? I'm, I'm starting to feel like Brad Pitt, you know, or, uh, uh, you know, uh, some, some someone fancy anyway. And with that as well, Junk House on vinyl. Talk about that, because that's coming up, right? You know what? I just received uh, the album Strays. Uh, it's 30th anniversary of Strays. Um, it was the album that uh, took a bunch of knuckleheads from the East Mountain of Hamilton and, and kind of catapulted them around the world. It was an album that, 
you know, I'd wake up in my hotel and turn the TV on in Leuven, Belgium, and and uh, and I'd be on MTV over there in Europe. You know, and wow. I mean, it, it was it was a great ride. I have to tell you, and it's part of my life that I still I still feel very. Uh, um, you know, I feel very romantic about that era of my life. It was a crazy time, but uh, Junkhouse, we did we did some really good work all over the world. That album is what did it for us, and uh, the fact that uh, Sony, who we don't have a relationship with anymore, um, have decided to release it on vinyl. So it's coming out for Record Store Day, and uh, I've got a copy. Uh, you should too. <laughs> it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool that at this stage of your career, you know, uh, whether it's Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, whether it's Lee Harvey Osmond, whether it's Junk House, whether it's your art, which is is also, or 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 your movie or book or whatever. It's amazing how many different aspects, how many layers are out of this onion now. Yeah, well, you know what? If you just if you just keep creating and you don't, uh, you know, stop believing in the power of creation, the uh, the power of art, then uh, you're you're living in a pretty good spot. I've I've managed to to work my entire life to get where I am right now, which is like I'm able mm. to paint and write music, and I'm writing a second book, and we wrote a play that's opening next year, 2024. Um, there's, there's just an endless supply of, of fantastic things, uh, that, you know, can come your way if you open up your mind and your heart to, uh, believing in yourself. And, uh, you know what? I, I, I work on that every day. You know, in fact, I, I have a phone call after this with McGill University who are interested in having me as their artist in residence. Can you imagine that, Scott? I mean, wow, I never, I never you. had the marks. I, 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 I never, I had no business being in school. And, uh, and, you know, I get to lecture at, uh, and, and uh, get these opportunities at universities that I never would have had a, a, a hope of, of getting hmm. a chance to enroll into, you know. So, um, okay, well, that sounds pretty good to me. Tom Wilson with us, Mohawk author, visual artist, musician, Lee Harvey Osmond, Blackie and the Rodeo Kings, Junk House, this weekend at the Junos in Edmonton, Contemporary Roots Album of the Year for Oh Glory. Tom, good luck, right? Enjoy the ride and have fun in uh, Edmonton this weekend. Thank you, Scott. We love hearing you every day. Please keep going. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 Okay, so, um... I'm in my 40th year of being in the media. I know. It's making me, uh, it's making me double over too. Anyway, uh, I swear, I swear, uh, we have had this discussion in the media on the air or do in some form, whether it's on a talk radio station or playing country music at my first job. Uh, we always talked about daylight savings time and inevitably the big debate. Why are we doing this? Why do we keep doing it? And, you know, obviously the majority don't care about this, which is exactly why we keep doing it. Or perhaps maybe like the extra hours of uh, sunlight and aren't, you know, don't care about losing the hour of sleep in order to get there. But it seems twice a year, whether we want to or not, we somehow have the debate uh, whether we should get rid of daylight savings time or not and what the effects of it are and so on and so forth. And then the next day it's completely gone, which really brings me to the point. Do we even have to have this discussion anymore? Is it really even worth it uh, to talk more? Uh, Patricia Lacken Thomas with us, York University and with us now. Patricia, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am Scott. Nice to be talking to you. And by the way, I loved your music cue. Here comes the sun. 
Well, exactly. Well, it depends what time it is, really. Uh, well, no, I guess it's consistent. It's what we decide the time is. So what, what is your take on all of this? Is it worth it? Is this debate worth it every year? Is it something that we need to study ongoing? What are your thoughts? Um, I think we need to keep having the debate because I think at the moment, uh, those of us in this part of the world are living under the wrong regime. We're switching our clocks twice a year, which is causing us problems. Uh, and there's debate about going to year-round daylight saving time, which would be even worse. So I think we do need to have the debate, and I think we need to get the evidence out there, which has really come up only recently in the scientific literature, that year-round standard time would really be better for us than either switching twice a year or going to year-round daylight saving time. But unfortunately, uh, the debate about legislation is going to year-round daylight saving time, which would be the worst of the three choices. And okay, so uh, let's start there. Why is it the worst of the three choices? Well, what we have to understand is that we've got a clock in our brain, our circadian clock that sets itself to the sun. It needs light. And because our clocks run a little bit slow, we have to speed them up every day. And we need light in the morning to reset our body clocks. Mm hmm. And if we get extra light in the evening, it makes us later. It delays our clocks, so we want to go to bed late. Right. And then yeah. we have to get up in the morning when our social clock, that is the clock on the wall, the time you have to get up to go to work, to go to school, uh, tells us to get up. But you've gone to bed late because there was so much light in the evening, and now you've lost sleep. And when we're on daylight saving time, if we were on that year round, we'd chronically be a bit sleep deprived because everybody's delayed. They want to go to bed late and then they have to get up early in the morning because of their social time. And that can have long term chronic effects on our health, negative effects on our health from being effectively jet lagged all the time year round. And that would so you're have the. Yeah. So you're suggesting that the best for us is standard time all the time, which would take away that longer, those longer hours in, in the summertime, which, you know, I am guilty of eating and doing everything later in the summertime. That's for sure. Uh, but that, that going back to standard time is, is what you think is best. That's what the scientific consensus is. So as yeah. a member of the Canadian Society for Chronobiology, which brings together all the people in Canada who study clocks, uh, as well as the uh, Society for Research on Biological Rhythms in the U.S. and European societies, all the scientific consensus is year-round standard time would be the best because under standard time, our social clock, when it says noon, then the sun is at the highest point of the sky. And that's the mm. best for us to try to synchronize our biological clocks with the sun uh, so that we would be in step with the sun and we wouldn't be trying to stay up late and losing sleep when we then have to get up early with our social clock. Okay, so I'm playing devil's advocate here, Patricia. So what's the problem? So what we do with this without, why is this such a big issue? What, how does this harm us? Well, there are two things going on. So switching twice a year, I think we all know it's just inconvenient. But also in the spring, when we spring forward, we lose an hour of sleep. And we yeah. can see that right after the spring forward, there are some acute health effects, things like increases in heart attacks and strokes, increases in car accidents and workplace injuries um, from this abrupt time change. Plus, we're moving the clock, the social clock away from the sun time, away from our body right. time. So we're making ourselves a bit jet lagged, which increases these acute events, but also 
uh, gives us some kind of chronic stress from being a little bit sleep deprived and jet lagged all the time. So especially in the winter, if we go on daylight saving time, you're not going to see the sun till like nine in the morning. And if you can think what it's going to be like trying to get your kids out of bed Mm. early in the morning to get them to school, trying to get up to go to work in total darkness when the sun doesn't come up till nine. Um, It puts a lot of stress on people. And it's going to also, in addition to the acute effects of switching suddenly, we have these long-term effects that we know from some very good scientific studies are going to increase rates of chronic diseases, things like um, overweight and diabetes, things like mm. heart disease, things like cancer rates. And we actually have yeah. some evidence that those kind of things will increase in society as a whole if we're constantly out of step with our uh, sun making our body clocks reset every day and then that's out of step with what society wants us hmm. to do. So the debate is not over. Patricia Lackin Thomas with us, York University, talking about daylight savings time. And in case you haven't forgot, uh, in case you've forgotten, Sunday morning, 2 a.m., spring forward, spring forward, fall back. Uh, thanks for the conversation, Patricia. Fascinating. Uh, be well. Thank you very much. The Conference Board of Canada has shared its economic outlook for Hamilton. To talk more about all of this, Ted Malik is with us, Director of Economic Forecasting, Conference Board of Canada. And with us now, Ted, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, I'm doing very well. Thank you. It's a very odd time, Ted, because we're certainly feeling the pinch of higher interest rates, and we certainly know about affordability, yet we're seeing unemployment rates uh, historically low. What, what are you seeing for Hamilton? Well, actually, we're quite upbeat. Once we get past the icy patch that uh, we're certainly in for 2023, I think there's some inherent advantages uh, in Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton's traditionally been a little below average in kind of city economies in, in terms of growth. But over the next uh, uh, four or five years, I think Hamilton's going to be on the above average side of things and and uh, for for a number of good reasons. Uh, one, it's a, it's a health sciences hub. And that's certainly going to be an area that's going to be expanding uh, importantly over the next couple of years. Uh, it's a strong manufacturing base, and, and we see a lot of interest in in making sure that we're we're making the transition to new forms of of, of uh, transportation vehicles and and so on, the energy transition and so on. So manufacturing sector is going to benefit, and uh, generally there's there's a big inflow of population, uh, both from other countries, uh, immigration from other uh, countries is going to be expanding, as well as people moving into the Hamilton area from other cities, uh, and that's mm-hmm. to say likely the, the GTA. So all those things together will mean that uh, Hamilton's economy will perform pretty well, but we've got to get there first. Uh, there's, there's obviously some challenges for the uh, next little while with prices and interest rates. Why do you think this is happening now? Um, as you said, uh, traditionally, historically, perhaps uh, below the average, now certainly above the average, and for the reasons that you just have mentioned. But is it just the, the development of the city, uh, geographics, where we are, uh, post-pandemic, uh, growth, that sort of thing? Is it just naturally Hamilton's time? Um, it is, I think, Hamilton's time to some degree. There's, uh, there's much better transportation networks back and forth, uh, you know, within, uh, the Golden Horseshoe area in general. It, it's raised the possibility of, of commuting time. Uh, and, and 
the the other aspect of course is that now that we have work from home to be much more of a permanent feature for many kinds of jobs it, it expanded tremendously the reach that businesses have in in attracting employees to their particular businesses so uh, it's allowed certain kinds of employees to uh, really live further afield from where the uh, where their offices normally would have been and then finally um we've we've been through the great restructuring of the uh, uh, the, the manufacturing sector from the uh, 80s 90s right. and and further on that uh, have, have basically kind of run their course and in fact there's a perhaps a slight reversal that businesses that uh, uh, certainly after the pandemic are probably not wanting to put all their eggs in the basket of, of uh, uh, overseas manufacturing, uh, specifically in, in China. Uh, so, um, you know, that, that will probably raise opportunities for uh, manufacturing of products, perhaps more niche product as opposed to, uh, you know, large scale uh, uh, manufacturing. But, uh, you know, that, that will help the Hamilton economy. A few bumps ahead, but looking good for the hammer. Ted Mallett with us, Director of Economic Forecasting for the Conference Board of Canada. Ted, thanks for the time. Be well. It's my pleasure. Thank you. All right. We've, uh, we certainly know the story about inflation and affordability and how difficult it is to make ends meet as uh, we are in this post-pandemic world. The groceries, obviously, one of the items, one of the categories that are going through the roof. <laughs> what isn't, I guess? And, uh, of course, yesterday, again, we've seen this a couple of times or, or certainly threats of it. Uh, Canadian grocery store uh, had CEOs, uh, big kahunas all uh, assembled at the House of Commons uh, with the Agricultural Committee and Agriculture Committee rather and and drilled about um, high food prices and, and record profits and, and all this sort of stuff which is great uh, for TV clips and such but is it actually doing anything? Is there anything to come out of these meetings? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder professor at the Group School of Business McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm glad to be with you too. Marvin, uh, obviously we've heard, you know, supply chain, uh, climate change, uh, the war in uh, invasion of uh, Ukraine from Russia. There's so many outside factors that are all influencing this. And we keep hearing the same stories over and over and over again. Is anything different after this meeting yesterday? Is anything to come of this? Well, I'm sorry to say the answer is no. Uh, Yesterday was more of a PR exercise on both halves of the equation. In other words, MPs got to stare at the CEOs and say, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it any longer. And you could applaud them for saying that. And then the CEOs turned around and said, look, it's not our fault. We're not greedy. We're not doing anything. And they each made their arguments, uh, met for lunch afterwards. And today we wake up and nothing has really changed at all. So why do we keep doing this? Well, I think uh, what had happened, let's say, uh, in December the, the same committee had wanted to talk to grocery CEOs, and the CEOs did not appear. They sent uh, people a little further down in the organization who really yeah. do are, uh, set the prices. They're involved in the day-to-day decision-making. Their thinking was, well, if you really want to talk to the people who set the prices, let me give you those people. We, the CEOs, we don't sit there setting the prices. Other people do that. But that didn't satisfy the Commons Committee. They really wanted to stare them in the eye. So yesterday, for instance, Galen Weston, who's who's behind Loblaws, was there. The head of Empire, which owns Sobeys and Safeways, and the head of Metro was there. They told them the exact same thing their second or third in command told them in December, but I guess it just made everyone feel better. But no, um, nothing really has changed. 
Uh, we've heard of more competition. Would more competition? There's like three or four major players, but I even we even had a clip from the independent grocery store uh, head who said they're dealing with the same thing. Would more competition help this at all? No, I don't, I don't think so. And I, I think part of the problem here is we don't really understand what's driving the inflation. Now, here's a simple example. Yesterday, Galen Weston said that when you buy $25 worth of groceries at a, a Loblaws or a Fortino's, the net profit margin on that is just 4%, meaning that $1 of the $25 goes to profit. The other reflects the cost that they have. And that, that has stayed pretty constant. What has changed, however, is the total amount of revenue they're generating. Loblaws is not just a grocery store anymore, whether it's President's Choice Financial, where they offer a whole sweat, suite of, of credit cards and other things. Uh, you've got um, uh, uh, banking activities going on here. Then they got involved in pharmacies, and so they're selling you drugs uh, as well as just sort of the things you'd buy at a, at a drugstore. So they've grown their revenues. As a percentage, their net profit margin hasn't changed, but they've grown their revenues by diversifying the product line. So it's, it's also true that their profits are up, but they're not up because they're charging you and I more. They're basically reflecting those costs. So when a supplier like Lay's raises the cost of the potato chips, they haven't changed their markup. But yes, you're paying more for those Lay's potato chips on the other side. And here's the last thing about this, Scott. People say, well, why do you have to reflect that? Why can't you just eat some of this inflation and, and generate less profitability than you were before? And, and we all think that the people who own all the stock of these big companies are big, wealthy individuals. But actually, the largest owner of all of this stock is pension funds. So yeah. all those seniors who are worried about being on a fixed income, they want their pension funds to generate as much income as possible. So we get this funny thing. You know, on one hand, I'm paying more to eat, but I also need more money from my pension. So, you know, improve the profitability. The CEOs are doing exactly what their shareholders are telling them to do. It's just one of these funny circumstances. I'm hoping, I'm hoping by the end of this year, this will just all be a bad memory because inflation is going in the right direction, meaning it is falling. You touched on this, Marvin, but uh, let's reiterate this. So uh, it's other categories, shoppers, whatever, that are generating these profits for grocery stores. So why don't though they kick in those extra profits during this these great times and give it back to the poor? Why do they not do that? Because the shareholders who own the stock and hire their managers say, we don't want you to do that. We want you to increase my dividends. I want you to generate more money for me. If I'm the Canada Pension Plan, who's got their money, billions and billions of dollars invested out there, they're investing in companies that give them a return so they can generate the pensions they need to on the other end. It's, it's a bit of a vicious cycle, but it isn't wealthy individuals driving it. It is the system we have called capitalism. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at the School of Business, McMaster University, explaining high grocery prices. As always, Marvin, thank you for your time. Be well. I will. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Joining us now, Ward 3 Counselor for Brantford, Dan McCreary. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good to be here, Scott. Thanks for the invite. Boy, uh, a lot of buzz around Brantford since the Bulldogs announced they were and you announced that we were going uh, sending the Bulldogs up there for uh, three years. Well, first Ontario Center is uh, is being renovated. There was 
there was worries that the Bulldogs may not come back. And now we hear that there's plans, all kinds of chatter around an arena. What is going on here and, and what's your involvement in it? Well, Scott, um, as, as you said, it's, it's, it's a very exciting time for us here in Bradford. Uh, Major Junior A hockey has been long gone from us uh, since the Alexanders took flight, uh, gosh, decades ago. Um, you know, Bradford is the sports tournament capital of the world. Uh, we, you know, we've had championship teams here. We had a championship lacrosse team here in the 70s. And uh, we are really excited to be back in the game, so to speak, Scott. Um, so what, what, we've, uh, what we've done is we have an agreement with, uh, an agreement with uh, the Bulldogs uh, that sees them playing in our city for three years with three one-year options on top of that. And part of a part of our agreement was um, that the corporation of the city of Brantford would examine the feasibility of building uh, a more suitable home for junior a hockey. Um, we're hoping that may be the Bulldogs, but um, you know, at the end of the three years and the, the option years, we'll see if um, we'll see if the Bulldogs want to make us a permanent home. And, and if not, um, you know, perhaps another team, but um we, we're, we're currently uh, playing in a 3,000-seat 1967 Civic Center, which is a beautiful old building. Reminds me a lot of Maple Leaf Garden, Scott, but it's uh, not suitable for junior A hockey. The dressing rooms are too small. The concession's too small. We don't have boxes. And again, a, a pretty limited capacity. So was this uh, um, was this part of the original deal way back when, when when it was decided that the Bulldogs were going to go to Brantford? Uh, was it decided that, yeah, you know, we'll take a peek at an arena. This was an option because this is really just coming out now. But was this all part of the original? Yeah, deal? It, it was all it was all part of the original discussions. Um, and, you know, it, 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 it maintains it keeps the options open for both parties. Right. You know, if mm-hmm. if, um, if this community really embraces that team um we we're going to do everything we can to make sure they make us their permanent home so what um, happens so what happens now what stage are you at now this okay. announcement's been made uh, how does yeah, this move so, forward? so we're uh, at council right now we approved a uh, committee of the whole my resolution uh i guess tuesday night and then it comes to council for ratification at the end of the month and provided it uh, it passes there and it was unanimous uh tuesday uh we will find ourselves a consultant who has some pretty good experience in terms of um, looking at these arena build options in other cities. Uh, and we'll get um, sort of a bare bones appraisal of where it should go, what it will cost, the size it should be, and whether or not we want to incorporate ancillary you know, developments around other entertainment venues, um, housing, and so on. Uh, but I think we'd be looking at making it more than a hockey arena. You know, certainly a venue for other kinds of events as well. So Brantford is looking at this not as a temporary situation to help the Bulldogs, but this is a great opportunity for for Brantford. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, we we don't we we are looking on this as 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 our opportunity to have continuing junior A hockey here, uh, and um, this community is really excited about it. I think we I could be mistaken, but I think we've sold about they have sold rather about twenty four. 100 seasons tickets uh, in, a, in a building that holds, I think, 3,000 and change with standing room. Uh, so it, I think we've done fairly well so far. And, um, you know, that enthusiasm, I think, is going to continue into the future. And and, um, and it's also a great, 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 great building to play in because it's mm. small and intimate. So um, uh, from what I understand, uh, for the three years, 2,500 seasons tickets have been sold in a 3,000 seat arena per year for the duration of the three years already. What does yeah. that say to you? What does that say to council? 
It says that we're on the right track. Um, it says that the efforts we're going to spend over the next, and, and the report's going to come back to us at year end. So it's, it's a pretty in-depth study. Um, and I, I think what it's going to say to us is that we want to find the, you know, we want to find the public support in our community to do this building. We think we've got the public support for the team as it is now, but um, you know, we, we've, we've got to put our money where our mouth is, so to speak, and, and make sure that, um, that the enthusiasm continues as well. On that being said, uh, say this all comes to be a positive situation and it looks like this is a, a great idea. How do you pay for something like this? How, how who comes in and, and, and helps square that deal? Well, ideally, uh, Scott, we get someone else to pay for it. Uh, we're, we're certainly we're certainly going to be looking at, at partnerships, you know, private sector partnerships. Uh, and, and as I said, perhaps it's part of a, a much bigger development uh, that's cost shared, you know, perhaps with with our OHL team, with the city of Brantford, with third party developers and investors. Um, but, you know, in the end, it's it, it, the city of Brantford's got to pony up some some dough for this. And that's going to come out of our capital reserves, which um, uh, means, you know, that some other things may go wanting over the course of the next five years. Uh, what do the Bulldogs say so far about all that's transpired of late? Well, I think I think they're quite pleased that we acted so quickly to get a start on what we agreed to do. Mm-hmm. Um, our agreement was to, you know, to conduct that study within the life of the three year uh, term. And uh, we're going to have that study finished by the end of this year and then be in a position to make decisions early in 24, I hope. And and what about reaction from um, from the city of Hamilton? Have you heard anything from this neck of the woods at all? Um, I, I'm trying not to drive through Hamilton these days. <laughs> uh, no, no disrespect to the city of Hamilton, but, it, you know, our our gain uh, certainly is a loss to, to Hamilton. And, and I can appreciate why folks might be a bit sad about that. I remember going, Scott, I remember going to Bill's games years ago and they were still mad because the league had uh, had stripped them of a home game and put it in Toronto. And then they blamed all Torontonians for that. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, and all yeah. Canadians in general. So uh, we can certainly appreciate the fact that there may be some long faces in, in the hammer these days. That being said, Bulldogs or not, it sounds like you're setting the city up for um, for a great opportunity here. And if not this, something else. Is we that are what you're looking at? Absolutely. And you know what? This is a this is a really vibrant period of time for the city of Bradford. We're seeing unprecedented growth. Uh, we've got the return of junior A hockey. I have it on good authority that our Costco store is forthcoming in the near future. Um, all things that speak to a feel-good atmosphere of Bradford that we haven't had for a long time and um, a real ego boost um, for this community. All right. Ward 3 Counselor for Brantford, Dan McCreary, has been with us. Uh, they got the team for a couple of years, three years. Now they're looking at an arena. Uh, Dan, <laughs> congratulations. It's great news for the city of Brantford. And uh, again, I'm not giving up hope that they're leaving Hamilton, but uh, maybe we can find you a nice other team you can look at. Thank you, Scott. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. All right, you may have heard the little uh, roll up the rim uh, uh, flip flop. (laughs) 
<laughs> that has happened with Tim Hortons. Uh, this is what happens when you take your uh, basic roll up the rim and you make her digital and all you fancy falutin. Look what happens. Uh, somebody thought, well, a few people thought they had won like a $10,000 prize. Uh, nope. <laughs> uh, it turns out there was a, com- a computer glitch of some sort, and they're only getting a $50 gift card. Carmi Levy is with us, technology expert and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott, although I'm kind of glad I didn't buy Tim's this week. Yeah, I, really. I this disappointed. is this is a juicy one. Tell how the digital version of Roll Up the Rim works and what happened here. Well, so basically it's it's within the app, and, and uh, whenever you buy something, you are given an opportunity to roll within the app. And, of course, then within that, within that app, whether you roll a successful roll or not, it's kind of like a slot machine, uh, mm-hmm. you can get a prize. Uh, and you can then scan your loyalty card, and then you can then see, you know, based on, on your personal account, what prizes you've earned. And it sort of it adds to your, your, your kind of list as you go along. It's kind of a neat, it's, it's a neat adaptation to the roll up the ring concept. Of course, they needed to pivot because obviously during COVID, kind of not that easy and, and not that hygienic uh, to be right. using, you know, sort of cups that people had been spinning on. Uh, so put it into the app. And of course, it also gives Tim Hortons even more opportunity to engage within the app and collect more data on us. The problem is software is not always perfect. And obviously, there were some bugs in the app that made it appear to some individuals that they had won. And when they went to collect the prize, the app crashed uh, and then, of course, there was you know, really no proof that they did. So they thought that they had won, but now they had no recourse. And as it turns out, it was a bug. They didn't win in the first place, which, of course, presents all sorts of PR problems along the way. Because, yeah, clearly, if we were using cups still, those things wouldn't have crashed. Those <laughs> things wouldn't have fooled us. <laughs> oh, man. So do we have any idea how many customers were involved here? How many got the wrong message? Uh, no, but obviously it, enough. Uh, probably not a lot. Um, but all it takes is one, right? All it takes mm. is one person, especially in the age of social media, that this happens to them. They manage to get a screen grab of it before it crashes. They're articulate enough to tell their story, and then they share it on social media, and it gets picked up from there. So um, it doesn't have to be widespread. And my understanding, or at least from the way I'm reading it, it's not. And, and you know, I've been reaching out to friends as well who are using the app because you know they're Tim Hortons fans. Uh, this is not massively widespread, so this might have been. Uh, an update to the app that that generated the error on certain devices under certain conditions. Um, but even if it's just a few dozen, that's a few dozen too many because that can significantly damage your brand at a time when, uh, based on the headlines I'm seeing about this company, they probably can't afford it. Yeah, good point. Um, is uh, Is someone out of work today as a result of this? Someone just do the wrong thing? Oh, you would hope so. Um, I would, and, but at the same time, you know, I feel for software developers. I've been working with them for a good chunk of my career, even now. Um, and so mistakes happen. Or in in this case, if you think about how complex it is to roll out an app, and how difficult it is to test for every single possibility, every single what we call use case or scenario that would be encountered once you get that app in the hands of an end user. There's no way to absolutely test 
everything. And then, of course, you get it as perfect as you can. And then Apple or Google come along and they update their operating system and they break your app. So this may or may not be Tim Horton's fault. This may be the fault of a third-party developer. This may be the, the fault of Apple, maybe the fault of the network that it's on. We're not quite sure yet. And, of course, Tim's isn't sharing a lot of that information with us, so we just don't know. But I think this is a good teachable moment for Tim Hortons and other companies that are thinking of using apps like this, is that you've got to have a plan that if the app breaks in some way, what is your plan B? Where is the goodwill that reaches out to these people who thought they won something? And how do you make them feel better about Tim Hortons? Because software may be imperfect, but humans can really account for that if they want to be kind. Uh, apparently, legally, if you look at the fine print, uh, the people aren't really entitled to anything because, uh, well, the fine print is the fine print. Yeah. And if something like this happens, that being said, um, do you think we'll see, like, if it's not that many, man, just write the check because the advertising is going to be uh, that you're getting the negative advertising out of this is brutal. Oh, yeah. See, that's the thing. You're absolutely right. The terms of use that pop up when the app is first installed. They probably, I'm sure Tim's is protected six yeah. days from Sunday. Um, but you know, you and I both know, and we've talked about this before. No one ever reads them, reads yeah. that, and no one reads the fine print. Nobody cares. And I think at the end of the day, this isn't really so much a legal thing as it is a PR thing. What's, yeah. what's the right thing to do? Like Tim Hortons as a company, when they rolled out this app, they collected all sorts of data on us that they didn't tell us about. And what did they end up doing? We all got a free coffee and a donut. So, That's right. You know, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. And so I've already got issues with this app and with this company. And so I'm thinking maybe Tim's might want to roll out a little bit more than a free coffee and a donut this time to these people to show that it is a little bit, you know, not as tone deaf now as it was then and that uh, things are a little bit different in the digital era. Do you think the slobbery cup's coming back? God, I hope not. You. <laughs> I, I think about that and I just cringe. And I'm, yeah, I never want to go back to that again. Yeah, even if you yeah. have one of those little clippy things. But no, no. And there's a bar. There's a picture of a barbecue there. It's just it's running a little bit. That's what it. All right. <laughs> yeah. uh, Carmi Levy with his technology expert and journalist talking about the problems that Tim Hortons has found itself in with its new app and rolling up the rim. Carmi, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thanks so much, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. Justin Trudeau said the National Security Advisor stated there was no information that candidates had received money from China or the Chinese Communist Party uh, in regard to uh, elections. Although reports yesterday, we talked to Sam Cooper from Global News, uh, the Globe and Mail also all over the story as well, uh, that says there were two reports uh, that said through two different elections that this in fact was going on let's talk about that and uh the rcmp investigated two alleged police stations chinese police stations operating within quebec let's bring in charles burton senior fellow center for advancing canada's interest abroad at the mcdonald laurie institute and with us now charles thank you for the time i hope you're well i am it's good to hear from you scott so charles uh, obviously these allegations have been floating around uh, floating around sam cooper from global news said to us right here on this show yesterday that there's no doubt now that these this information was available to the prime minister's office what does this say where does this take us well i mean you know certainly if the prime minister was out and out um lying to you know, in in these statements, that's uh, that's uh, that, that says that he has to uh, you know resign. I think that uh, when you start to parse them, 
maybe there's some use of language which is strictly right. correct but might cease to uh, to um, mislead. And so, you know, we don't really know yet because we haven't uh, been able to do a full uh, investigation. Um, you know, up to now, the... Um, the, the parliamentary committee that's looking into this, the Procedure and House Affairs Committee, which the Prime Minister feels is the best venue to investigate this matter, is being blocked by a filibuster by the Liberals to prevent the committee from voting on calling the Prime Minister's um, Chief of Staff, Katie Telford, to come in and give us a bit more clarity on exactly what's going on. So. You know, seeing as they can't call the prime minister himself, I think they feel that Miss Telford might be able to provide insights into, um, you know, whether what Sam is reporting is like completely made up and and uh, yeah, exactly you know, fraudulent, or you know, more likely, uh, there there was in fact knowledge of of Chinese uh, related money going into political campaigns, possibly including the prime minister's. And uh, and they the government, for whatever reason, decided not to uh, follow up and expel some Chinese diplomats and to um, bring to a court of law um, the agents of the Chinese regime who were engaged in this. You know, I wrote the introduction to Sam Cooper's book, Willful Blindness. So, you know, I have a something of a conflict of interest here. But I think hmm. what Sam is telling you is the truth. Uh, the national the statement that the prime minister was making, there's no information on candidates receiving money from China. Really, I don't think that is what was reported. What was reported was this was going through organizations that eventually funneled it through to those candidates. Nobody said it was coming right from China. So there's the wordsmithing there. Yeah, I mean, they didn't. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party Central Committee did not cut one of their checks and send it to support no. the candidate. <laughs> But, you know, your related story, which is the police stations, that strikes me as a venue where this kind of activity could well have gone on in the sense that people that were getting kickbacks for their donations to uh, certain political candidates from Chinese sources probably didn't go and knock on the door of the Chinese consul general in Montreal, but would have gone to one of these police stations, you know, for that kind of service. So. You know, it, 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 we're starting, the, the whole thing sort of fits together of police stations, Chinese malfeasance through proxies, um, you know, cover-ups on the, alleged cover-ups on the part of the government. It's all, it's all becoming one of a piece. And unfortunately, it does not make our, our government look very good. Uh, these police stations now appearing in Quebec, or are now reports of them in Quebec. We also know of the Toronto and, and Markham area, Richmond, B.C. area and such. What does this say that we're now finding them there? Well, uh, you know, it, it's interesting that there were two of them in Montreal. I mean, Montreal doesn't have that big a Chinese population, but, um, you know, clearly they're, they're, they were able to put them in because they can put them in. And I guess in Brassard there is a certain concentration of relatively recent immigrants from the People's Republic of China. And, um, you know, the, the the issue really is that why is it that we had to hear about these police stations from a Spanish uh, NGO? You know, mm. why isn't, why uh, aren't our police locally able to detect that there are um, agencies of uh, the Chinese Communist Party existing in their jurisdiction? You know, it just, it just sort of boggles the mind uh, how little investigatory capacity the police seem to have on matters relating to the Chinese community, which, of course, communicate 
in a language which wasn't which isn't English or French. Doesn't it seem odd too? And I'm sure they're not related, but you know, uh, here we are talking about government devices, uh, people using them, banning TikTok. Can't have TikTok on your device anymore because of the relations to the Chinese Communist Party. Yet elections don't seem to be an issue. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously it's about money and influence, and I think that um, um, you know this is a disturbing reality of Canadian politics: is that we think that we're you know, we're an exceptionally moral and clean political system, but I think that as we will be finding out as time goes on, that particularly if we get that Foreign Influence Transparency Scheme Act through, that there may be quite a number of distinguished Canadians who are or have been receiving money from foreign powers on the side, and that makes them beholden to those powers and causes them to start to act in the interest of those powers, possibly suppressing um, information about espionage or other illegal activities uh, of those powers, and maybe in the hope that after you retire from politics, there'll be a nice, uh, cushy, high-paying mm. position available for you, connected probably to China. And so, you know, you do hear about a lot of former cabinet ministers who seem to be doing very well in retirement on matters that seem to be associated with China, and it makes you wonder if they had been thinking about this when they were in a position of public trust and therefore didn't do anything that the Chinese government would have felt unhappy about. You know, we just we just need much more clarity on this so, so that people can, that there are currently under suspicion because we don't have enough information, will have an opportunity to clear their name. Why wouldn't they want to do that? And it's already happened twice. I mean, how much confidence do we have in the next one? Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time right now. So, Charles, we'll have to say that. Charles Burton, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad at McDonnell Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks so much. I'm sure we'll be talking again soon. All right. Uh, we talked a while ago about uh, the Canadian government, the U.S. government, too, uh, their decisions to uh, ban TikTok employees who have government devices. No TikTok on the government devices whatsoever. We're seeing provinces do the same. We're seeing some companies uh, jump on this. City of Hamilton and uh, the Hamilton Police Service also following uh, the same guidance. However, we all know that social media has become a huge part of uh, political campaigning and getting the message out to voters and such, and TikTok, a very big part of social media. Uh, it's not just Instagram and the rest. This is a very much a, a vibrant uh, part of Canadian social media and, and really that around the world. So how does this affect uh, what the politicians say or how they get to us, the message to us? Let's bring in Aidan Moyer, visiting assistant professor, University of Toronto, Scarborough, and with us now. Aidan, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Thank you for having me very much today, Scott. So we're hearing, obviously, and seeing more and more politicians uh, jumping on social media and using that to get the message out and such. Now, uh, and my goodness, I mean, this is still a big issue in our family, TikTok and such. Uh, my kids all think I'm crazy uh, mm -hmm. telling them the story. But uh, obviously, governments have banned this from their devices. How does this affect campaigning or does it? Is there enough other stuff to go around? Yeah, it's a time, especially today, it's timely since just about an hour, 90 minutes ago, the Ontario government and Doug Ford just announced that they're also banning yep. TikTok on government devices within the province. Uh, and my research looks at Jagmeet Singh. Uh, and if you follow Jagmeet Singh on TikTok, you will know that he is a TikTok superstar. 
He has, um, at at the time, just before he deactivated his profile uh, earlier this week, he had almost 900,000 TikTok followers, which might not seem like a whole lot in comparison to some of the big stars on the platform who have, you know, 50 million followers and up. But the Canadian TikTok community is very small. So 900,000 is a really impressive number for Jagmeet Singh. His interactions on TikTok, his likes, um, the views on his videos, his comments far exceed his other social media profiles like Instagram and Twitter. So TikTok was a really, really important part of Jagmeet Singh's uh, digital campaigning, especially for the NDP who don't have the same financial resources as some of Mm -hmm. the other political parties in Canada. Uh, So it definitely will be something that they will miss in terms of being able to circulate their message on TikTok to a very useful demographic. The NDP definitely saw this as a long-term investment for the future in trying to appeal to young platform TikTok users and hoping that Jagmeet Singh's uh, appearance on the platform and his popularity on the platform would translate to future votes uh, and future elections. You talked about the number of followers uh, that he had. He, he's way out ahead of everybody else. The other politicians are all on it as well. But I understand uh, the next closest is Pierre Polyevra, and that's like two hundred and sixty thousand or so. So it's he's quite mm-hmm. a bit ahead of it. He's quite a, a bit of ways ahead of everybody else, isn't he? And he was really ahead of ahead of the pack. Uh, he started yeah. his TikTok in August of 2019. Um, this is, you know, before the pandemic. This is before TikTok became a big deal in North America. Of course, uh, in Asia, it was already a pretty important and popular platform. But within North America, it had a very, very small following. So he was the first federal uh, party leader to start a TikTok profile. This was also before the 2019 federal election. Uh, his second video that he posted just days before the federal election went viral. Uh, And one of the reasons why he went to TikTok was because the NDP were uh, experiencing some some cash issues just up to leading up to the election. So they saw this as a a last minute push um, to get their message out. But up until Pierre Polyev, there weren't really any federal party leaders on TikTok. Uh, Justin Trudeau wasn't on TikTok. Aaron O'Toole was very, very briefly on TikTok. He posted about four videos um, before he resigned. Uh, the Bloc Québécois had an account. Uh, the federal NDP had a official NDP TikTok account. Um, some local politicians, some MPs, MPPs, um, some mayoral candidates had TikTok profiles. But Jagmeet Singh was one of, for a long, long time, the only federal party leader using the platform. Uh, so it really set him apart from some of his uh, competitors. Obviously, although it has been banned on government devices and, and so on, provincial, what have you, and, and municipally and such, it still is a pretty popular platform. So what do they do moving forward? Do they just find another avenue, another social media platform to do this on? Because obviously they're out, they're out now. Of course, right? So Jagmeet Singh is still, of course, like all politicians on Twitter and Instagram. Um, But what really hurts Jagmeet Singh and the NDP is they were really investing in TikTok. Um, They've also done work with Twitch and Clubhouse, um, Animal Crossing community, all these different platforms to try and reach young voters, um, which is where the young voters are. Increasingly, young people are receiving their news um, and looking up information on TikTok, not on Google, not on Wikipedia. They're using TikTok to find information 
information, like election campaigns, like what their politicians are advocating for. Um, so even though Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, like all political parties in Canada, are active on the dominant platforms right now, Instagram and Twitter, it still is something that they're going to desperately miss because there is mm. that youth connection on TikTok. And there's that interactiveness, that playfulness on TikTok that really distinguishes it from Instagram and Twitter. Uh, you just don't get that same playful connection. And obviously, as you said, people are still continuing to use this who are allowed to or can or it doesn't affect their, their work in any way. Um, so do you think voter, considering what you just said, Aiden, do you think voters who saw all this stuff on TikTok and were, you know, were following it and, 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 and relating to it and such, do you think they will go looking on the other platforms for these people, for politicians to hear the message? That's a good question. Um, and I don't know if I have the answer to it myself. Uh, I, of course, I follow Jagmeet Singh and other politicians, but that's my research. So I have to on, yeah. on Instagram mm-hmm. and TikTok and, and Twitter. Um, but I do think there is that youth demographic that they were really trying to reach um, that are really exclusively using TikTok um, over their other social media platforms. Um, the ability for videos to come across their profiles on their For You pages is not the same as on Instagram or Twitter. Uh, So I definitely think some who might have seen Jagmeet Singh's content um, and started to follow him, started to pay attention because of what they saw on TikTok, I definitely think that element will be missing, that they won't purposely search out that content on Instagram and Twitter. Do you think it's odd, and I don't even know if this is uh, in your lane, Aiden, or whatever, but, but don't, and I was just having this conversation with someone. Do you think it's odd that we're having all of this commotion about TikTok, and yet we don't seem to be all that concerned about election interference from the same place? Uh, it seems one, but not the other. Does, is, is there any relation, any, any connection there? Definitely. Um, and it's important to point out with TikTok that these concerns about you know, data and security and privacy exist on all social media platforms. Uh, yeah. And it's something that I think many have come to terms with that there is that likelihood that our data is being collected in ways that we don't know when we go on these platforms. Uh, so just because TikTok is in the spotlight right now for these issues, which happen, you know, these larger conversations in, you know, geopolitics about US, Canada, China relations, uh, other social media platforms like Instagram and Twitter are not immune from these same conversations. Uh, so it's important to keep that in mind when we're thinking about these issues with TikTok and why we're still using myself included. I'm still on TikTok all the time, uh, even though these conversations are still happening. Are you surprised, Aiden, that there isn't somebody in some laboratory somewhere isn't coming up with the next TikTok? Because obviously it's waning here and, and who knows what the future of it's going to be. But what's the next one? Is that being invented as we speak? Good question. So much of what made TikTok unique, like the interactiveness, right? The video, yeah. the audio, visual quality. Other social media platforms like Instagram with Reels are trying to adapt in. Um, so we're seeing the progressions. We're seeing other platforms borrow from what TikTok, what made TikTok unique. And of course, those platforms are, are now benefiting from the conversations about security concerns with TikTok. Um, so all platforms borrow from one way and another. Instagram, of course, borrowed from Snapchat um, with stories. So there's always that give and pull with different platforms. Aiden Moyer with us, Assistant Professor, University of Toronto, Scarborough, talking about the ban of TikTok and what it means for the next election campaign. Aiden, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you very much, Scott. I enjoyed speaking with you today. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is here now. Scott, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I am, and I want to offer you my sincere and heartfelt congratulations today, Scott. What's that for? You, uh, I believe, set a well, a world record, perhaps, on radio with the longest quiz question ever given. <laughs> <laughs> I was driving in, listening to Hammerhead Trivia, and I thought, is this the whole segment to the bottom of the hour, just the question? <laughs> so the question was too And then when we got a, a listener on the phone, hey, that, was was that was outstanding. That was outstanding. And I thought it, she was like trying to get through to the boss or something, but it wasn't. She was trying to call her doctor. Uh, she called back to apologize. <laughs> To Will. It's like, I'm sorry, I missed out. I was trying to call my doctor. I thought well, it that was like, I thought it was Scott MD. You, you're now the yes. new thing. I've got this rash on my elbow. What do you think it is? You know might what be? it is, though? Uh, you, you know, uh, it takes a bit of work to do hammerhead trivia because there's research involved. <laughs> yes. But I'm, I find it fascinating. And and as I get going, it's like, uh, that's way too long. I got to cut that crap down. I got to shorten it. I got to shorten it. But there's so much cool information in there. It's like, yeah, okay. I'll take that on as great uh, as a great critique. Uh, I and I will, try to, I will try to shorten it up a little bit. It was actually a great segment, especially when she then followed that up, as I say, <laughs> yeah. with the the person just randomly calling, going, Beckers? Like, whatever she was yeah. called for. I don't know. Yeah, Doctor? Exactly. Yeah, that was great. Uh, the only thing that would have been better, uh, yesterday, uh, the International Women's Day, I was doing this big build-up for Jen McQueen because, you know, she's a professional, she's a mother, she's balancing it all and whatever. And I thought, wouldn't it have been odd if all of a sudden I went, and here's Jen McQueen, and Dave goes... It's Dave Scott. It's not Jan. <laughs> I've done that a few Which, times. I know. Me too. All right. Enough of the inside baseball here. Uh-huh. Uh, so earlier on today, I'm talking to Dan McCleary, uh, counselor for Brantford. Could they be yes. any more giddy up there? Uh, and, and, you know, after listening to him and, 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 you know, I was on a Zoom call, so I saw his face. You know, I feel like a boob. And it's because, you know, Hamilton continually seems to take one step forward and three steps back and the people up there are just shaking their head uh, that this is now turned into what it is. Uh, your thoughts on where we are? Um, I'll, I'll tell you something. So back when Council Branford Council first voted unanimously to take the Bulldogs on, uh, I wrote something the next day in the spec and I'll, I'll paraphrase what I said at the time, but it was, who's got this wrong? Like, is Brantford Council just this backwoods, hick town council because they're so unbelievably excited about getting a yeah. team? Or, are the, our, or is our council so totally out of touch that they have no idea that they're watching this team go away and couldn't give a giant crap? I don't know. Yeah. You know, and it's odd. I was talking to the counselor, and this was all part of the original deal because we didn't hear anything about this at the beginning. But it's like, no, this was all part of it, and they thought it would come with time. But these guys see the opportunity, and they're jumping on it now. You know, and and I couldn't get it into my column uh, today or yesterday, whenever it was today, I guess, that that I wrote about this. But one of the interesting quotes from the mayor, from Kevin Davis, uh, is that he says, you know, we, we see, you know, we're trying to be a can-do council, not a can't-do council. And those are just, you know, those are phrases and cliches and stuff. But he says, you know, when we see an opportunity, we're trying to remove a lot of the administrative slog and make something happen. And he, he wasn't directly pointing at anyone else, i.e. Hamilton. But he goes, you know, a lot of places it just moves really slowly. And I was like, tell yeah. me about it. Tell me about it. Now, whether this goes anywhere is still to be entirely oh, yeah. decided. We don't know, yep. but boy, it is it is startling 
and I don't know a better word, it is startling to see a council move on something really fast without having to have nine months of arguing and consultants reports mm. and debate and division and name calling and city being divided. And like it just they've said, we're going to do this and they're doing it right or wrong. They're doing it. You hit the nail right on the head, Scott. You hit the nail right on the head. And, you know, remember for years we were saying we need a change at city council. We need a change at city council. Well, over the last couple of elections, we've seen a lot of changes at city council. But are we any happier with those changes? Are we still a one step forward, three steps back city? Well, so let me let me bring you to our budget deliberations right now. One of the things that a lot of people said during the last election was we want a more cohesive council. We want a council that's not going at each other. Well, you know what? We're probably in all likelihood going to have for the first time in at least four years and a lot longer than that, I believe, a block of councillors voting against the budget. Usually yeah. this is a, 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 a front that they all come together. It's a united front. When they finally get to the point where you're, def- you're bringing forward the budget, everybody is on board. There are a bunch of them now that are saying, I can't do this. So this idea that we voted in this cohesive council, wait a year or two, Scott, until the new – because there's 10 new ones. Wait until these 10 new councillors really get comfortable in what they're doing and get their feet on the ground and get some confidence. And let's see how cohesive they are when they're really willing to dig their heels in and fight. Uh, I think too busy, too many politicians too busy trying to save the world instead of managing what they're supposed to do, whether it's municipal, provincial, federal, or what have you. We'll leave it at that. We're out of time. Have a great show tonight, Scott. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpayer and customer to have the last word. Mr. Lowe wrote in to say, oh, those were the days to buy a Tim's coffee. Enjoy it and with anticipation, roll up the cardboard rim to see if you want a donut, Subaru, or try again. Just hate what COVID did to roll up the rim. My class would wait in silence for me to roll up that rim. A teachable moment. 